When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts and home to a plethora of wonderful music-based podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Michaelidis, and after spending some 30 years in the music industry and working with some of the world's leading artists, I've finally been paroled, adopted by Pantheon and sharing some amazing stories from some equally amazing people. Moments That Rock is that moment where artists and music industry insiders share moments that rocked their world. Our special guest today is one Christian Swain, who was foolish enough to give me a job and employ me making podcasts. So why not have him in? That seriously, though, the reason we do have him on is he's been uh, an avid enthusiast of music. He has his own rock and roll archaeology. archaeology. Uh, but let me pass it over to Christian for a far better bio than my good self, Mr. Swain. Thank you very much, Tony. Uh, yeah, I am the CEO of Pantheon Podcast, or officially Pantheon Media, but our focus is in the podcasting space. We've been uh, doing this for about eight years. Uh, we have a network of uh, music-related podcasts. That's our uh, expertise and how we uh, we come to the podcast space and <coughs> try to help um you know, podcast discovery. I mean, that was really the impetus of where some of this kind of started was uh, we created a show, as you mentioned, Rock and Roll Archaeology. Uh, yes, I'm sometimes known as the Rock and Roll Archaeologist. And uh, we wanted to tell a uh, a deep dive uh, into uh, the music, culture, and technology of the late 20th century and how those three things impacted and created feedback feedback loops with each other uh, and made probably um, one of the biggest, if not the biggest art movement uh, in the history of mankind. You know, if you think back on... Um, uh, and I just was thinking about this the other day, uh, the Impressionists, uh, you know, uh, Van Gogh, uh, uh, Monet, Manet, um, Gauguin, uh, Degas, uh, you know, there, there was there was about uh, 20, 20 of these guys, maybe 30 of them. And this thing lasted for about a good 20, 30 years. Uh, I think the end of the impression, uh, the Impressionists uh, comes with the beginning of World War One. Uh, and. Um, uh, you know, people still think back fondly uh, on that art movement. Uh, it was a big deal. It really changed art uh, quite dramatically. Uh, up until that time, it was all about trying to, you know, um, get to photorealism, uh, if you will. And I'm not an art major. I'm sure there's art majors out there going, no, that's just the simplistic explanation. But yes, it's a simplistic explanation. But, you know, I think with the advent of photography, 
uh, artists, painters, uh, you know, began to say, well, geez, uh, there's photorealism for you right there. Uh, maybe we can look at the world differently and hence impressionistically. And uh, uh, that was a, a big, big moment. And I think that the rock and roll era, which is, you know, pretty much all the music of the late 20th century, uh, and it'll just be called the rock and roll era, uh, will hold um, the same, um, uh, the same uh, uh, lofty position as uh, the Impressionists uh, enjoy uh, here now a uh, hundred and so many, so many years later. You know, archaeology is, uh, you know, the study of the past and, um, you know, through uh, its tools and its architecture and its works. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, anybody that is interested and still interested in that period of time, um, you know, you can kind of call an archaeologist. I, I think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, that particular music and what I mean by that is, um you know, uh, four, three, four, I, I guess, okay, we can start with two, two, three, four, five uh, people, self-contained, uh, you know, simplistic instrumentation uh, that is electrified uh, and, and, and they write their own songs. Um, you know, most famously, it's the Beatles that, you know, are, are the, they're, they're the, 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 the prototypical uh, band, if you will, if you can do what they do, <laughs> which very few could, uh, you know, you could, um, you know, become uh, successful in, in an art movement uh and uh you know at the same time um you know uh we're moving away from a victorian uh age uh into something a little bit more emotional and and i think that's a lot of what the late 20th century is about and i think we see this in our art and it's the exploration of emotions and how those emotions um you know interact and work uh the pluses and the minuses and uh you know uh music in a 3 minute uh story could uh could say a lot about those emotions uh you add uh the music to enhance those uh, those lyrics uh you know uh, backing up what you're saying uh, and uh, uh or a juxtaposition uh which is also common um you know you you make impact uh and i think more so than any other art form it's 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 kind of like smell uh whereas you know if you if you smell something that takes you back immediately you you're put back into that place that first time you you smelled that wonderful stew if you will and uh music is is very similar it, it immediately takes you back uh so there's a huge nostalgic uh component to it and and you know let's face it um you know, for the first time in uh, human history over the last 100 and yeah, 150 years now, maybe a little bit longer, you know, we've been able to record, you know, ourselves in real time. Uh, and I think when we get to the 1950s or, you know, post-war, post-World War II, uh, the technology to create high fidelity 
recordings is really what sets the world on fire. Um, so from the technology standpoint, you know, the these folks all showed up at the right time. Uh, you know, one, one of my earliest questions was, was always since I was young, how is it that the two greatest songwriters of the 20th century, both known as se- senior geniuses, uh, were born one mile apart from each other? That's what does that say about genius? Uh, is it nature, nurture? Uh, I, I think some of it is a, a little of both of those things. I think with John and Paul specifically, the big thing about them was that their mothers died when they were teenagers. I think that created a bond between the two of them, uh, and they were able to tap into their emotions. And I and I said that that at the same time the world started asking for that. Uh, they wanted an exploration in emotions and, you know, uh, you know, you being a, a, a Brit, uh, you know, stiff upper lip and buttoned up and all that was the expectation uh, until these times. And then it was uh, no, let it all hang out. So, um, you know, we've gotten to see the, the other side of things over the last uh, 70 years. I wasn't around uh, when, uh, you know, Cole Porter was uh, writing his great tunes, you know, or or Oscar Wilde was on the scene. But those people are hugely important to me uh, in in my 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 upbringing and my my interest in uh, in music. And, and, you know, to make a direct correlation, the only reason I picked up uh, Oscar Wilde was because I knew that, that Bowie was a huge fan of his. Uh, and uh, so I figured I would gain uh, or glean some information about, about, uh, about Bowie uh, through, you know, the readings of, uh, of the writings of Oscar Wilde. Uh, and, uh, and there's, there is some definite truth to that. I mean, you, you can see parallels and he's also, you know, boy, I, I don't want to make this whole thing about, about, Bowie, but because we could, um, but um, uh, first of all, on the on the film itself, I, I really enjoyed the film, and and I, I think you almost kind of got to be a bit of a Bowie file to enjoy the film because it's very impressionistic. Uh, I called it uh, uh, a cascading montage. It just, just, it's just. Uh, there's no linearness to it. There's, there's, there's a bit of a chronology to it. He, it starts with uh, Ziggy Stardust and it does hit the various iterations uh, of, uh, of the characters that he created, um, you know, from one to another uh, as, as, as he says, you know, as an art project uh, that, uh, you know, these were acting roles uh, that he considered because he was a bit insecure uh, on stage and, uh, you know, he could become somebody else. Um, uh, but um, uh, the other big takeaway for me, which I think is really important, is what an erudite, well-read uh, man uh, he was. Um, uh, and I think that really comes through uh in the lyrics um you know a, a lot of what he wrote about uh granted was isolation and to make a big deal about that being um you know uh an alien or or feeling not a part of the tribe being an outsider uh and things like that uh, those are huge themes that he explored over and over again but he was able to do it um in a in, in just constantly evolving way and the other thing that comes across uh which i knew 
and it's really obvious in in this latest film is just how incredibly honest he always tried to be in any interview it was he really pays really close attention to what the interview is is asking and then he gives about the most honest answer he can even to the point of contradicting himself and willingly say yeah yeah yeah, i said that a few years ago and I was an idiot and this is how I feel today. So, you know, to have a huge intellect like this, uh, you know, and, and, and again, this is just some cat from Bromley, you know, uh, you know, the same thing with John and Paul, you know, they, they were, you know, scousers uh, from Liverpool. Uh, there's nothing special uh, about them on paper. Uh, but yet all of them, you know, go on to uh, grab this new, you know, uh, art form and really turn it into something, you know, incredibly special. And I, th- I think there's a handful of artists that will be remembered, you know, hundreds of years from now, you know, like Mozart and Bach and Brahms. And, you know, I think that it's definitely the Beatles. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, they are definitely going to be on the top of that list. I think Dylan uh, will will be on that list. I think Bowie will be on that list. I think there's a few others, but I think Bowie is probably the the more the most interesting of everybody, especially when you consider that you know uh, the the drive that he went through to even get somewhere uh you know the the 10 years in the wilderness of the 60s uh you know he starts his first band i think in 63 and uh really doesn't you know he you know he has a a a minor novelty hit with space oddity in 69 but it's not until ziggy uh in um uh 71 72 that he becomes something big and by the way that's only in the uk he doesn't really become big in the united states until the mid 70s and yeah 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 the the uh the um uh his first uh uh tour of america was a bit of a disaster uh the ziggy thing was really coastal uh you know i don't think america was ready for a gender bending uh sexually ambivalent character um you know america doesn't really it, it, you know takes us a long time to to get there i think the you know the first of all the I've, I've always said that um the big difference between british rockers and american rockers is that american rockers always want to try to be authentic that's their thing they trying to be you know real about it whereas the brits all know it's fucking show business and uh you know the you know it's a it's it, yeah it's a, there's no no reason why you can't do both but it's show business and uh you know the more show the more business you get so uh uh so they kind of figured that out uh, pretty quickly uh and uh were willing to to you know go to places that uh that maybe the americans uh weren't um thank god for the british invasion uh uh for for a variety of reasons as you know i love all music all kinds everywhere uh and i love exploring music from all over the world uh and I can always find something good about it. 
but uh, if push came to shove, you know, my record collection leans towards uh, the uh, the British Isles uh, more so than uh, than uh, the American side of things. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Musically... I think other than the Beatles, uh, Bowie is the most influential artist uh, of the rock and roll age. Uh, you know, and in fact, um, a shameless plug here. Uh, as you know, we're doing some work with Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets tour. And uh, and so two of his guys, Guy Pratt and Gary Kemp, uh, come from OMD and Spandau Ballet of the 80s, which is the new romantic period. And and that is a direct correlation to bowie there's there's no new romantics of the uk in the early 80s late 70s early 80s without bowie i I, he he sets the sets the 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 table and uh you know a lot of these bands uh pick it up uh, from there i've done a little bit of research it's going to be an upcoming rock and roll archaeology um uh episode about that glam period because number one it doesn't last very long uh it's like maybe two years maybe three at the max uh it's very small 
there's only a handful of, of bands that are officially in that uh, that glam period of the early 70s in the UK. And it's also only UK. Uh, I guess you could throw the New York Dolls uh, in there uh, as well. Uh, they, they attempted to do their little gender bending thing. But weirdly, where America goes with glam rock is Kiss. That's their idea of glam rock, which is fire, blood, and violence. Unfortunately, uh, it didn't translate to America, uh, the glam period, the er, the early glam period. And then when it does return as, if you want to call it that glam rock, which some people referred to hair metal of the 80s out of L.A., um, again, uh, sure, the boys dressed up like girls, put on some lipstick and makeup, you know, teased out their hair or their spandex, but it was still very heterosexual. There was no homosexuality to that whatsoever uh, from their perspective and the lyrics and the presentation, uh, if you will. Um, so, yeah, the the issue was that. Now, I think it's also fair to, to mention that, uh, as we know, uh, Bowie wasn't ever really a homosexual, even though he claimed he was uh, in an interview with Rolling Stone. He was all about shock uh, effect and that he, you know, pulled this together as an acting job, as a character that was created. Ziggy Stardust is an invention, Um, not unlike Alice Cooper. Uh, The difference, though, is that uh, when Ziggy started to eat his uh, mentor, his author, uh, that author said, enough of this, I'm moving on. Uh, Alice had to go through, um, you know, uh, rehab and, um, you know, alcohol detox to... Excellent stuff from Christian Swain, our historian, music archaeologist. Um, and don't forget to listen to his uh, Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast on Pantheon Podcast. Really good stuff and uh, very interesting stuff right across the board, in fact. And um, yeah, we'll be back with Christian's moments. Uh, this time he shared, like, yeah, impressionist sexuality, uh, people who were going to leave an impression themselves, like Bowie. But let's not go there. I was talking about Bowie, like he said, all night. Um, we'll be back with Mr. Paul Natkin and part two of his moments. Well, I'll show you that. Paul Natkin. He's got a brilliant book called The Moment of Truth, which is a photographic history of his career. He started in 1976. You can hear the previous uh, stuff he talks about um, if you scroll through and listen to a previous podcast of uh, Moments That Rock. Uh, today, we're going to hear him talk about a whole bunch of rock bands and then, to finish it off, his time with a slightly popular band called the Rolling Stones. But first of all, he talks about Alice Cooper, Guns N' Roses and a few more. This is Paul Atkin. So I, um, I had a friend who was a publicist for Geffen Records and I was set up to do a photo shoot with Alice Cooper once. I was going to shoot him after his show, you know, pose portraits. And she called me up and she said, listen, I heard you're going to be shooting Alice Cooper. Uh, I've got the band that's opening the show for him. And uh, you've never heard of them, but they're going to be really big. And the one thing I've learned in this business, and don't take this the wrong way, but every publicist will tell you that every band they work with is going to be really big. I didn't want to, I didn't want to set up my equipment twice and do two separate shoots. So I said, well, I don't know who these guys are, but if they'll wait around until after Alice's show, 
I could throw him in there for a couple pictures before he walks in the room. And she said, okay, I'll tell them to wait around. You should look him up before you go to the show. The name of the band is Guns N' Roses. I didn't even shoot them when they played, you know, on stage. I, I didn't even go out in the hall. I was just backstage setting up my stuff for my after show photo shoot. And uh, so Alice finished finish the set. The house lights came up. I went back to my little room with my backdrop. And these guys started walking in one at a time. Slash walks in and Axel walks in and Izzy. And I did individual shots of each one of them. And I had no faith whatsoever that they would become famous. So I just took about three pictures of each guy just to satisfy the publicist. And then when they were all in the room, I said, okay, all you guys get in front of the background. And I shot four pictures. And I've sold those pictures like 400 times already. And, and I, I started getting access to them every time they came to town. And I you know, would take pictures of them and it got to be friends with their manager. And then in 1990, uh, they played at a, an event called Farm Aid which is Willie Nelson's charity. And I was the official Farm Aid photographer. So the Farm Aid in 1990 was in Indianapolis and Guns N' Roses was on the show. And right before they went on stage, their manager came up to me and said, listen, we're not going to let anybody shoot pictures of the band today. Cause they were, cause Axel was, was wearing a cowboy hat. And they thought that that was not appropriate for their image. So he said to me, do me a favor, don't shoot Guns N' Roses. And if you do that, I'll make sure that you get access to them forever. So I said, okay, no problem. So I ended up standing at the side of the stage watching them play. All the other photographers completely disobeyed rules and they just walked out into the crowd and walked up to the front and shot their whole set. I was the only one that didn't shoot. And then I've never been able to shoot them since. Their, their manager, like, never never got back to me, never allowed me to shoot him since. Except for at the end of the, well, this was the year before, but it was kind of like the same era. Uh, at the end of the Steel Wheels tour, they did a pay-per-view, the Stones in a pay-per-view in Atlantic City. And they invited Axel and Izzy to sing, to do Salt of the Earth with them. And uh, so I shot him there. And I got to be friends with, with Izzy, who's a really nice guy, great guitar player. Uh, we were standing in the lounge after sound check, and I was standing talking to Izzy in the corner, and we looked up, and Eric Clapton was playing pool by himself. And Izzy looks at me, and he says, oh, man, I would give anything to meet Clapton. And I said, dude, you're Izzy Stradlin. You're from Guns N' Roses. Just go up and introduce yourself. And he says, he said, I can't do that. And I just, I, I didn't even know Clapton. I had met him like once and he had no idea who I was. I was just some guy with a camera hanging around. And I just grabbed Izzy by the arm and dragged him over and said, Eric, I want you to meet Izzy Stradlin. Uh, you should play pool with him for a while. And, uh, and it, Izzy, every time I see him, he, he tells me about that moment where I introduced him to Eric Clapton and how great it was. And uh, a couple years later, he came to Chicago to rehearse, to shoot a video 
and rehearsed for his tour for his solo album. And he hired me to spend five days with him, just hanging out with him and doing, doing photos during their rehearsals and their video shoot. It's full, few and far between, but when it happens, it's a great thing. All these stories that I have kind of go back to the Stones at some point or another, but they don't really mean, they're not about the Stones. Uh, the next one I got is, uh, there's a guy named Chuck Lavelle, who's the keyboard player for the Stones. So we're, we're on the plane every night flying from city to city. And Chuck, Chuck used to be in the Allman Brothers back in the day. He's from Georgia. And he, uh, one day we're sitting on the plane, it's middle of the night, and he says, you know, I just played on an album with a band from Georgia called the Black Crows. And you should check them out. They're, they're, they're going to be really big. So I got home at the end of the tour, and a month later, I saw an ad in the paper for a Black Crows show. So I called their publicist and set up a photo shoot. And I have a friend who I describe him as the world's largest human being. Uh, he played for the Chicago Bears in 1985 when they won the Super Bowl. And he's six foot seven and about 325 pounds. And he's a huge music fan. So I arranged for a photo shoot with the Black Crows and I called my friend Keith. And I said, hey, you know, you should come with me for this because this band is really good. You're going to like them. So he came to my house and I put all my stuff in his car. We went to the show, went in at soundcheck and we walk in the dressing room and the Black Crows are sitting there and they're five little tiny skinny guys. And this guy who's six foot seven and 325 walks in. And I've been, we've both been friends with, the, friends with the Black Crows ever since. And every time they come to town, both Keith and I go to the show. And at some point during the night, somebody from the band will say, man, do you remember when, yeah, you couldn't believe this guy comes in to take photographs of us and he's got the world's biggest assistant with them. I've been friends with those guys ever since and we'll be friends with them forever. And I, if I'm working with a band, I always tell them, uh, you have to allow me to go anywhere I need to go to get the picture. And if it means getting on the stage for a couple minutes, I'm going to do it. But I don't spend any, I don't spend a lot of time up there. Sometimes they actually interact with me and it's great. It's great. But I, I also feel like the, the a perfect example is Gene Simmons from Kiss. The reason they don't like people taking pictures of them anymore is because he gets distracted because he spent so much time posing for the cameras that he forgets to sing. He walks up and down the row of photographers and sticks his tongue out for every one of them, at least a couple times every show. If they interact with me, Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick is really good at throwing guitar picks into the audience, flicking them into the audience. And he would stand there and try to flick them into my camera lens. And every once in a while, he would do it. When they interact, it's, it's, that's, those are the greatest pictures. They were always going to put on a show. And, they were, and they're, they're great guys. So when I'm shooting a band that I like, where I'm friends with them, it's definitely, you know, all things go. Whatever needs to be done gets done. If I went to a concert and shot 10 rolls of film, nine rolls would be black and white, one roll would be color. And the only reason I shot the roll of color is that there were magazines that wanted color pictures. But I would rather have shot black and white of everything. I... I like the Rolling Stones, obviously. I've done three tours with them. I'm particularly fond of Keith. Uh, I was really fond of Charlie Watts. He was, uh, he was a great guy. 
Uh, I, I'll photograph Springsteen anytime he plays anywhere. I photograph Prince like 30 times. I also love hanging around with Ozzy Osbourne. I took, mostly by accident, I have to say, the most famous picture of Ozzy Osbourne ever taken. And it was in 1982. Uh, he was, his guitar player was this little kid named Randy Rhodes. I was shooting Randy, I was taking pictures of Randy and Ozzy walked up behind him and picked him up in the air. And I took a picture just out of reflex, you know, like, hey, this is happening. Grabbed the camera, took a picture. Uh, Randy died a month later. And people have told me, I don't believe this, but people have told me that that picture is the most famous heavy metal picture ever taken. It's appeared on, without exaggeration, 50 magazine covers, at least five or six book covers. It was an album cover. It was, I'm looking right now at my wall in my living room. I don't have as much stuff on my walls as you do. I've got a snowboard on the wall, Ozzy and Randy on it, that I that I sold to the snowboard company. I'll go and shoot him anytime, any opportunity I have. You know, and he's a really funny guy and he's fun to hang around with. A gent we had on the podcast a while back, his name is Paul Atkin, his book is called The Moment of Truth, and it's basically photographs, talking about photographs uh, throughout his career, and he's talking to us. So you heard a bunch of things there, the Black Crows, uh, Farm Aid, Guns N' Roses, Alice Cooper, and now we're going to hear Paul talk about his time with the Rolling Stones. In 1989, I became the tour photographer for the Rolling Stones, and the first day of the tour that I shot, I realized that Charlie Watts was like, he was like a hundred miles away from me. I'm in front of the stage. He's, the stage is the size of most arenas. And what am I gonna do? I gotta get pictures of Charlie. And on top of which he had a plexiglass shield on either side of him for sound barriers. So the only way to shoot him was from straight ahead. But you got the drums in the way, you got the cymbals in the way, you got the cymbal stands in the way. So we get on the plane that night to go to the next city and Charlie motions me over and I didn't even know him at the time. I had met him like four hours earlier. Turns out he's probably the nicest guy I ever met in the history of the music business. And he says, well, have you figured out how you're going to get pictures of me? And I said, it's probably going to take me a couple days to figure this out. And he said, well, there's a really easy way. At some point during the show, just come around to the back of the stage, walk up on stage, and just walk right in front of me and stand there and take pictures. And it's the freaking Rolling Stones. There's 60,000 people in the audience in a football stadium. Am I going to walk right out on stage? But I did it. And he's posing for me. And then I turned around and I looked out and I was standing on stage Mick Jagger was standing on one side of me. Keith Richards was standing on the other side of me. And there were 60,000 people in the audience looking at us. It was so intimidating that I only did it a couple more times. But I always made sure to get, you know, you have to get pictures of one of the members of the band, of every member of the band. And that's the only way you could do it. But other than that, I mean, I climbed everywhere on that stage. I went up three stories up on the scaffolding and shot from up above. The only other time that being on stage was great is that one day 
I went on stage and I took a picture of them taking a bow from behind them. They all had their hands in the air. They had their arms around each other's shoulders. And the audience is all lit up because they liked the audience at that point. And uh, no other photographer on the tour had thought to do that. And after the tour, they put out a book of photographs. And that picture was the back cover of the book because it was a perfect ending to a book. It was them from behind looking out and the audience all looking at them. And, but other than that, I tried not to get on stage. I want to be friends with Keith for the next 50 years. I want to be invited over to his house to hang out in his swimming pool in his backyard, which is like the coolest thing that's ever happened to me. They are the greatest rock and roll band on the planet for a reason. At every, at every press conference they hold, somebody asks Keith how, how much longer they're going to do it. And he said, he always says the same thing. He says, what am I going to do? Am I going to stay home and like watch TV? He says, this is what I do. This is what I know how to do. And he always, he always describes Muddy Waters playing until the day before he died. And John Lee Hooker playing when he couldn't even stand up anymore. He's going to live forever. He can still kick his leg up and kick his foot up in the air over his head while he's playing the guitar. It's not as difficult being on the road as it might seem. Because you're staying in five-star hotels. You've got people catering to you every minute of the day and night. You get to sleep all day. You just have to get up on time, on time to get in a van and go to Soundcheck. And, uh, and then you play in front of 70,000 people who all love you. Is there anybody you wished you'd have photographed that you didn't get the chance? Don't say uh, Mozart. <laughs> uh, I probably would have liked to have photographed him, but that was a little bit before my time. <clears throat> but I started in 75, and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin had both died by that point. I, maybe they didn't die that early, but I wasn't shooting at that point. Uh, I would have liked to have photographed both of them. I never photographed the Beatles. I photographed Ringo when he, he did those solo tours but never photographed anybody else from the Beatles. Other than that, I photographed 4,400 artists, pretty much everybody. 4,400 artists, that's incredible. I've seen a few of those pics myself and they're absolutely amazing. So thanks again, Paul Natkin, and of course to Christine Swain. And uh, as I mentioned before, Christine has his own uh, rock and roll archeology span program on here which is of course uh, the thing that started it all Pantheon Podcast and there's plenty of good stuff on here so you've been listening to me Tony Michaelidis with Moments That Rock we will be back with plenty more just lining them up now thanks for listening subscribe write reviews do everything that makes me popular <laughs> bye bye it's NFL draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football fantasypoints.com features industry leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand charted data to help you score more fantasy points fantasypoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play whether you play fantasy football daily fantasy sports or do a little bit of everything fantasy points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.